0: Everybody was extremely different in not only their appearance, but their beliefs, their identity. Like everybody was extremely, extremely different. When National came in, they didn't see the sisters being representative of their brand or what they wanted to be on a college campus. What I saw when I went back, everybody looked very cookie cutter. You know, everybody had a similar personality and they all dressed a certain way. And as opposed to being this very unique, very different, very diverse, small house that was very cohesive.
1: This is Terry Reese, University of Pennsylvania class of 1989. And she's talking about a crazy episode that happened at the University of Pennsylvania, the Ivy League school in Philadelphia, in the late 1980s. It turns out that the national branch of a particular Jewish sorority, Sigma Delta Tau, felt that the women who made up their pen chapter were the wrong kind of women. And they felt that if the current women stayed in charge, the pen chapter of Sigma Delta Tau, a chapter at a prestigious Ivy League school, would go out of business. So the national headquarters decided to swoop in and fix things. This decision set in motion a story that involved subterfuge, backstabbing, and finally, a coup. Make no mistake about it, the story you're about to hear is a sad story, a story that involves Jews being unkind to other Jews. But at the same time, it's also the story of what happens when Jews get really comfortable. Because by the late 1980s, most Ivy League schools were a fifth or a quarter Jewish, and Penn was more Jewish than most. What this meant was that Jews didn't feel they had to be the model minority anymore. They didn't have to be on their best behavior. They were so at home at the school, they felt such a sense of belonging, that instead of sticking together for solidarity, like a minority group, they could just be themselves, warts and all. In the 1980s, Penn was a great place to be a Jew. But was it too great? I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Gate Crashers, Episode 7, Penn and the Great Sorority Coup of 1987. Before we get to what happened to the women of Sigma Delta Tau in the late 80s, we need to get a better understanding of Jewish fraternities and sororities in general. Now, there were always Jews in some Ivy League frats. You'll remember from our Dartmouth episode that a couple fraternities there were mostly Jewish in the 1950s. But at Penn, there was a history of fraternities and sororities that were explicitly founded for Jews, which was something that had started on campuses nationwide early in the 20th century.
2: Jewish fraternities and sororities are basically products of exclusion at the turn of the 20th century.
1: This is Shira Cohn, a historian who studies the history of Jewish sororities. She said that by the early 20th century, there was a robust Greek system throughout American universities. But at a lot of campuses, it wasn't welcoming to everyone. Jews were admitted to the schools, but sometimes excluded from the social life. So they made their own.
2: The birth of Jewish sororities really happens in 1909 at Barnard College in northern Manhattan, which is an all-women's college at the time, still is. And this is when Alpha Epsilon Phi was founded. This is a group of Jewish women who tried joining existing sororities on their campus at the time and were told that there was no place for Jews. And so they came together in one woman's dorm room, and they decided that they wanted to have the exact same ideas of quote-unquote sisterly bonding and camaraderie that they felt like their non-Jewish peers were really enjoying. They formed what became the Alpha Chapter of Alpha Epsilon Phi at Barnard College. Within a decade, Cohn
1: said, three other Jewish sororities were founded. Phi Sigma Sigma in 1913, Delta Phi Epsilon in 1917, and also in 1917, Sigma Delta Tau. And those are basically the big four Jewish sororities to this day. Now, a small point of clarification for those of you who are true scholars of Greek life, Phi Sigma Sigma and Delta Phi Epsilon are technically non-sectarian, but they have a Jewish cultural heritage, whereas AE Phi and SDT are explicitly Jewish in their mission. So what exactly were these Jewish sororities doing? Were they just imitating traditional Gentile sororities?
2: The Jewish sororities are this fascinating fusion, really, of aspects of traditional non-Jewish Greek life, trying to infuse it with some kind of Jewish identity experience.
1: In addition to providing a Jewish social scene at a school that may have had some anti-Semitism, the sororities also help Jewish girls, many of them away from home for the first time, navigate some basic needs.
2: They not only offer you camaraderie through these you know, sisterhoods, these friendships, they have housing. And housing is hard on these post-war college campuses to find.
1: By the 1950s, these four sororities had national reputations.
2: There was an understanding within the Jewish sorority world that the elite, the most supreme, beautiful, you know, you want to be in these prestigious Jewish sororities, it was either A, Phi, or SDT on a given campus. And supposedly, if you couldn't get into one of those existing houses, then maybe you would seek out D, Phi, e and Phi, Sig, Sig.
1: Now, Shirakone pointed out that, of course, every sorority chapter was different. SDT or DeFi-E might be the popular girls on one campus, the quirky eccentrics at another. But the national headquarters of all the sororities worked hard to ensure that no individual chapter got too individual. Nationals had to make sure that every chapter upheld the sorority's good name.
2: On a national level, so these are really the adults in the room, if you will, they're very aware of how Jewish women are perceived by non-Jewish women at the highest echelons of the sorority world in the United States. So it is very important to them that all the members of their collegiate chapters really adhere to like the best possible behavioral and cultural norms. They really need to show that Jewish women are just as good as non-Jewish sorority women, whatever good means at the time. So you will see alumni coming into local chapters to help with rush, for example, right? Like who should be a member of these sororities? Do they appear like everyone else? Could they be taught to be more like whatever the typical norms are at the time? Is this someone worth having in your group?
1: Through the 1960s or so, before the sexual revolution, Nationals also had to make sure that the girls on each campus were behaving like proper ladies.
2: There are fascinating records of alumni writing the national office about badly behaving sorority girls at local chapters across the country.
1: So that was the scene from the 1910s through the 1960s. Four Jewish sororities, each with chapters all over the country, and the national headquarters of each trying to enforce certain standards across all the chapters making sure the sisters were proper, ladylike representatives of Jewish womanhood. And this attention to the culture of a local chapter would be especially intense for a sorority at the University of Pennsylvania, a school where historically Jews had thrived. Penn, as it is known, had almost no history of anti-Semitism. As long as anyone could remember, it had been a terrific place for Jews to go, which meant that if something was off in Jewish sorority life at Penn, people took notice. there are a bunch of reasons why Jew Penn, as the joke goes, is so Jewish. For one thing, Penn was never a Christian divinity school. For another, it's located in the heart of a big city with a big Jewish population going back to colonial times. And it's always had a plethora of professional schools, which appealed to Jewish boys and girls striving to get into the middle class. Penn has a law school, a medical school, a dental school, the famous Wharton Business School, a lot to pick from.
3: And I think what is important to remember is that Penn, really after World War II, Jews really began to be accepted in larger, larger numbers.
1: That's Judith Silverman Hodara, who in 2003 wrote a dissertation on Jewish life at Penn. She said that a lot of factors contributed to Penn becoming known as the Jewish Ivy, including the war, government policy, and the fact that it had always been known as a very open place.
3: It was also post-Holocaust, so all of a sudden, you're getting a lot of Jews that are possibly immigrants that are coming to study in the United States, and there's this flood. What, to me, became an important hallmark at the time at Penn was just this, this real openness that wasn't happening on other college campuses. People were steering themselves in that direction, and then like encourages like, of course. So if you hear there's a lot of Jews on a certain campus, that's also going to continue that roll out of more and more
1: individuals. Just how good was it for Jews at Penn? It was so good that in 1952, a time when Yale, Harvard, and Princeton were still working hard to keep Jews below 10%, the Christian fraternities at Penn were afraid there weren't enough Christian boys. At that time, there were two Greek systems at Penn, one composed of Jewish fraternities and the other composed of all the rest, what you might call the Christian frats, although most of them weren't religiously Christian. Anyway, the Christian frats were facing a shortage of men to join their ranks. On March 21st, 1952, the Daily Pennsylvanian, the student newspaper, ran an article that said, Following a secret meeting Wednesday night of students from about 20 fraternities, a three-man delegation was appointed to consult with the Office of Admissions on present university admission policies. According to unofficial reports, the meeting Wednesday grew out of a dissatisfaction with present admission policies in view of the Christian-Jewish ratios in recent classes. Observers commented that the agitation over present ratios grew out of the precarious positions of several Christian houses following the last few rushing seasons. This was such a big deal, by the way, that the Harvard Crimson also covered the story in an article with the headline, Penn Frats Want New Jewish Quota. So, just to be clear, the situation at Penn in the 1950s was that the administration, far from keeping Jews out, was admitting so many of them that there weren't enough Christian men to fill the rush classes of all the Gentile fraternities. And over the following decades, Penn just kept getting more Jewish. Nobody really knows how Jewish it got. But Judith Silverman Hadara was willing to hazard an educated guess about Penn's Jewish percentage in the 1980s and 90s.
3: About 12 times the national average, which ends up being about a third. But no one's going to tell you that number because it's a difficult number to put your finger on. What does being Jewish mean? What does self-affiliation mean? What does non-affiliation mean? Yeah, I I would say a third.
1: But there were two big problems for Jewish sororities, problems that went back to the 1970s. The first was that the hippie generation, the counterculture, had turned against the Greek system
2: there starts to be by the 1970s, a crisis in the Greek system and that college students don't see these groups as desirable anymore, non-Jewish and Jewish. And that, you know, if we think about the 60s with the rise of these social political movements, the counterculture, the rise of ethnic consciousness, fraternities and sororities, they're seen as very backwards, conservative, elitist organizations. And what ends up happening first in the non-Jewish world is that men and then later women stop rushing in as big of numbers.
1: This was the case at Penn as well. We found a number of articles from the 1970s saying that sorority after sorority was voting to disband. In 1970, the Sisters of Delta 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 vacated their house on Locust Street and closed up shop. In 1971, there were only five sororities left on campus. And by 1977, there were only three, Kappa Delta, Chi Omega, and Kappa Kappa Gamma. None of them was historically Jewish. And then there was another problem, which was that the separation between Gentile and Jewish houses was breaking down. This was a good thing, but it also posed a dilemma. Some Jewish boys and girls had always rushed Gentile houses, but now this became a real trend, and it got to the point where Jews who wanted to go Greek saw all the houses as options. Some of them might have even thought that the non-Jewish houses were cooler.
2: And so Jewish houses become in crisis and that they feel like they're losing the quote-unquote creme de la creme of Jewish men and women to the non-Jewish houses.
1: So now the sorority's national headquarters had a new task on their hands. Not just making sure that their chapters were getting the highest quality pledges, but simply making sure they were getting enough pledges for the houses to survive. Shira Cohn said this was the case at Penn, where even after SDT returned in 1980, The houses were weathering tumultuous times.
2: Alpha Epsilon Phi at one point had closed. I think they were back by the 1980s. I think Delta Phi Epsilon had closed permanently, but Phi Sig, A E Phi, and of course, STT were all functioning on campus. So there was definitely an idea, both on the local collegiate level, but also in the national office, that this was a competitive campus. There were Jewish women coming, but there were three different Jewish women's groups operating, all competing for the same women. So if the stakes were perceived to be high and they felt like the collegiate members were not attracting the quote unquote right caliber of Jewish woman, it would not be unusual for the national office to at first probably send a local alumni over, but even officers at the national level to go into that group and manage the situation and also have very behind the scenes but very clear talks with some of the inducted members about whether they should stay in the sorority if they did not appear to be representing the group well
1: nationals would send staffers to local chapters to help them recruit the right jews
2: they have to go to the campus in their opinion to see where are who they deem to be the, the most desirable jewish women where are they going how do they either attract them back or build up other Jewish women to be seen as comparable to those.
1: Which all brings us back to what we heard at the beginning of this episode, how the Penn chapter of SDT wasn't cool enough for nationals. As our story enters the 1980s, Greek life at the University of Pennsylvania has fallen on hard times. Remember how we heard about 1952 when there were dozens of Christian and Jewish houses fighting for members? By the 80s, there are fewer fraternities and sororities are on life support.
4: When I was at Penn in 86 through 90, there really was no, initially no Greek life. The sororities had all died.
1: This is Stephanie Fogel, who ended up in Sigma Delta Tau. How she got there is going to be a big part of our story.
4: They built those high-rises where the sorority buildings had been. So the fraternity Greek life was pretty active, but there really wasn't much of a sorority life just because the housing had been plowed down. It was gone.
1: Fogel is exaggerating a bit here. Sorority life had not died. But to her, as a freshman, it seemed dead. And that's the point. Jewish sorority life had bounced back a bit since the 1970s, but it was still in deep trouble. And Sigma Delta Tau was in the deepest trouble of all. We knew we might have lost our national status if we couldn't bring our membership up. This is Charlotte, Ireland, SDT class of 89.
4: You need to keep paying for the bills. You need to pay for the house. You need to pay for the national, whatever it costs for them to keep going.
1: It's not clear how small SDT had gotten. But based on the interviews we did, it sounds as if there were maybe five to 10 women per pledge class. One article in the school newspaper said the whole sorority had 35 women. This was about a quarter of the optimal size. Here's Terry Reese, also SDT, class of 89.
0: It was a very small house, and the other sorority houses were not as diverse and were huge. You weren't able to meet all of the sisters because there were like 200, 300 sisters that were in these houses, whereas Sigma Delta Tau at the time had like 40, 45 women that were there, and it was great.
1: So SDT was small, but the women in SDT liked their little sorority. It was intimate, everyone knew everyone, and they felt it was more diverse than the other sororities in a couple ways. First of all, not everybody in SDT fit the typical sorority stereotype. Here's Charlotte, Ireland again.
3: An example would be, if you maybe went to a chapter down south where all the girls posed together in the
1: same shirt and the same jeans and the same hair, it's rah-rah. Whereas SDT wasn't trying to make you look a certain way. And here's Terry Reese.
0: It was diverse in majors, body type, ethnicity, religion, appearance, socioeconomic status. Everything was just very, very diverse. We had nursing majors, engineering majors, econ majors, math majors, science, like everything across the board. But
1: also, as Reese pointed out, SDT was diverse in one very particular way. It was religiously diverse. For example, Charlotte, Ireland wasn't even Jewish. She didn't even know SDT was historically Jewish until after she had pledged. We talked to Fern Abrams from the class of 1990. She was a chemical engineering major who says she loved how diverse SDT was.
5: I really liked the people I met, and it didn't meet my image of a sorority, the usual stereotypes that most people hold.
1: So what you have in the mid-1980s is a Sigma Delta Tau chapter that is small, quirky, maybe even a little bit nerdy, and very diverse. Sounds like a pretty cool place. But if you're working at the SDT National Headquarters, you're worried because you want the pen chapter of all chapters to be large, thriving, and robustly Jewish. You need it to be Jewish because that's your sorority's mission, and you need it to be large so that it can pay the bills on this big house. It just can't survive as a small, intimate, diverse group. So in 1987, National took action. Action. Remember what Terry Reese said at the very beginning? Let's have another listen.
0: Everybody was extremely different in not only their appearance, but their beliefs, their identity. Like, everybody was extremely, extremely different. When National came in, they didn't see the sisters being representative of their brand or what they wanted to be on a college campus.
1: When National came in during the fall of 1987, they saw a chapter that didn't fit the brand. And they found a pretext to take over Penn S.D.T. Their pretext was that the local chapter had served alcohol at a rush event. Now, this was not allowed, but of course, every sorority did this anyway. Leslie Hausman, class of 89, was in Kappa Delta, not S.D.T., But she was also on the Panhellenic Council, which oversaw Greek life at Penn. So she had a sense of what was going on with Penn S.D.T. and National.
5: And so they trumped up, I mean, it was true, but it was kind of a trumped up charge to get the the current members in trouble, like basically like having alcohol in the house or something, which was true, but also had been going on for years and National knew that.
1: Terry Reese was actually abroad in Italy when this happened, but she heard about it from her SDT sisters in Philadelphia.
0: They had said that National heads went to one of the meetings, the planning meetings, and said, look, we, we understand that everybody drinks, that everybody has liquor here, we, and that it's dry, and you know, but we get it. They had a rush event, National just observed. Afterwards, when they went back to the meeting, they said, OK, so because you broke one of our rules and had alcohol at this rush event, but you told us it was OK, like you knew that it was going to happen, they said we were going to suspend all of you, and we were going to take over the rush and we are going to run rush and pretty much we're going to take over the running of the house for this semester. And we're going to install our own officers. It was National coming in and saying, we're taking over.
1: Friends, if you like what you're hearing on Gatecrashers, you might also like another podcast that I host. Unorthodox is the universe's leading Jewish podcast. And each week, my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz, and I discuss the news of the Jews, and we interview two guests, one Jewish and one a Gentile of the week. We talk to fascinating people. Some of our guests have included comedian Judy Gold, Congresswoman Katie Porter, authors like A.J. Jacobs, Chuck Klosterman, and more. Guys, this show is a lot of fun. It's irreverent, but not silly, at least not most of the time, and it will always get you thinking. You can find Unorthodox, a Tablet Studios production, wherever you listen to podcasts. Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. Okay, so not only did SDT National come in to discipline their own members, the SDT Women at Penn for doing something which was widely done, serving alcohol. But then, according to Reese, they installed new officers. This is key because the new officers were not from SDT. They were from a women's social club on campus called Alpha Zeta. When Reese returned from Italy, she could see that things had started to change.
0: What I saw when I went back Everybody looked very cookie cutter. You know, everybody had a similar personality and they all dressed a certain way. And as opposed to being this very unique, very different, very diverse, small house that was very cohesive.
1: As far as we can tell, it all went down like this. The prior spring, without the knowledge of the SDT women at Penn, National had approached Alpha Zeta, this other women's group at Penn, and invited them to merge with the SDT chapter. They basically said to Alpha Zeta, come merge with our chapter, take over, and become our officers. SDT National engineered the overthrow of its own Penn chapter. Here's how it's all described in an article from the Daily Pennsylvania dated November 23rd, 1987. 35 members of the Sigma Delta Tau sorority were placed on a six-month probation this weekend by their national organization. Also last night, 29 members of Alpha Zeta Social Club voted to join with SDT, which was recolonized at the university in 1980, as pledges at the urging of SDT's national representatives. The probation disqualifies all 35 current members of the chapter from voting and holding office and will force the SDT National to install members of Alpha Zeta as interim officers. SDT president, Debbie Rosenblum, said that her sorority broke a national bylaw by serving alcohol at a party last Friday night. Okay, so SDT suspended all 35 of its own current members and then brought in 29 members of this new Alpha Zeta Social Club to join with SDT. And those newbies were the only ones eligible to hold office. The next day, November 24th, the Daily Pennsylvanian ran another article in which it quoted SDT National President Lynn Morano, sort of admitting that while alcohol was the immediate issue, they'd been scrutinizing the Penn chapter anyway. This article reads, according to SDT National President Lynn Morano, the national organization's actions on campus were routine. She said that the chapter had received attention from the national's advisors over the last few years because it had not met recent membership goals. Convenient, you know? By the way, when we at Gatecrashers asked SDT National to comment for this podcast, they declined. We also asked Lynn Morano and Debbie Rosenblum for comment. Rosenblum refused, and Morano said she had no comment beyond what she told the Daily Pennsylvanian in 1987. So, what was Alpha Zeta? And why did SDT National invite them to take over SDT at Penn?
4: We started Alpha Zeta A to Z with a group of friends because we really wanted to have a you know a women's organization that was able to do social things and philanthropic things and allow us to really get together and enjoy each other's company and be productive and all of that stuff in school without Greek life really being a real true option.
1: This is Stephanie Fogel again from the class of 1990. She was a founder of Alpha Zeta. She said that sorority life was so weak at Penn that to many women, it didn't seem worth doing. So she and a bunch of friends started a social club. And as it happened, a lot of them were Jews. This is Risa Miller, another member of Alpha Zeta.
6: We had a group of like-minded, mostly not all Jewish girls that sort of hung out together. And a few of them took the bull by the horns and, and asked if, you know, we wanted to sort of become a more uniform group that was called a social club and and we named ourselves Alpha Zeta and basically started trying to do what sororities do, you know, have social functions, do some community service work and kind of hang out together and create a community within our bigger community. It was sort of just a way to like, I guess, bypass a weak sorority system and form something that felt good for us, that felt like it was similar to a sorority without a house.
1: Alpha Zeta grew and grew to the point where it was big enough to seem like a sorority. It was a de facto sorority on a campus where the actual sororities weren't doing that well. Here's Stephanie Fogel again.
4: Once we got to the point where we got to be pretty big, we were approached by the university and the university said, look, guys, you can't do this without, you know, insurance. Like you're not like registered. You're just doing stuff. And you know, what did we know? We're like, you know. 20 years old, we're doing our thing. So they suggested to us that we consider going to some of the sororities that had really been prominent on campus and to see if we could merge with them and then perhaps reinstitute Greek life, which did not really exist.
1: Alpha Zeta, trying to affiliate with a sorority, somehow hooked up with SDT. How they made this connection remains a bit mysterious. But what is clear is that their first talks were with the national office, not with their schoolmates at Penn.
4: We went to SDT. We met with the the woman who headed it up, Cookie Feldman.
1: Here I just have to say that we tried to find Cookie Feldman, and I did find a Cookie Feldman who works at a synagogue in New Jersey. But it was the wrong Cookie Feldman. It wasn't the Cookie Feldman who worked for SDT in the 1980s. If anyone knows how to find the real Cookie Feldman, give us a call.
4: She was incredibly warm and inviting and they talked to us about SDT and Greek life and what that meant and rushing and all of that stuff. She was SDT national. She was older. The person sort of in charge of advancing SDT nationally. What we did was we ended up merging and we started to institute a rush process that like we'd never had.
1: So that's one version of how this happened, that Alpha Zeta Social Club was under pressure from Penn to become a registered official sorority. And they reached out to SDT headquarters in Carmel, Indiana, which facilitated a merger. But I also heard another version from Alpha Zeta member Risa Miller,
6: and my understanding, I don't know if this is correct, is that one of the girls who was in our Alpha Zeta Social Club had a very close friend from home who was in STT at the University of Michigan. And someone on STT National had spoken to someone at Michigan and asked if they knew anyone at Penn, because I think they realized that there was a captive audience of Jewish women at Penn that probably would be interested in joining a sorority if they felt like there were more like-minded people. And they kind of found out that we existed and it was sort of like, oh my God, how perfect is this? Like we have, you know, 25 women that are freshmen and and there were a few sophomores too that could basically like change our chapter overnight.
1: According to this version, SDT National, having gotten wind of the existence of Alpha Zeta through someone at the University of Michigan, set the coup in motion. They planned this. In the spring, they began thinking about how to change the leadership for Rush in the fall, how to push out their own women. This was clearly a coup. Here's Risa Miller again.
6: They came, they basically framed the girls that were living in this house, living on campus, contributing to the Penn community in a way that was meaningful and wise. And they didn't see it that way because they just didn't want to see it that way. And they basically offered for us to just become the chapter and to kick them off campus and to use this excuse of having alcohol in the house as their means to an end.
1: Miller told us that these events were concerning even to the women in Alpha Zeta, who after all were being smooshed into a sorority with women who might always resent them.
6: We basically said, huh, wait a minute, like you're gonna leave here in 24 hours and fly back to wherever you're from and we live on this campus and there's these girls did nothing wrong in our eyes and We don't know them. We don't have any hard feelings against them.
1: Stephanie Fogel, the Alpha Zeta member, all of a sudden found herself running sorority rush for SDT, with SDT National ushering her along.
4: And what they did was pretty interesting. They brought girls in from other schools to help us rush. And so we did a rush, and then we ended up becoming a sorority, and then the sorority life, I think, at Penn after that was invigorated and started to grow. So I was the president of AZ, and then I was the president of SDT.
1: In all this swirl of activity, with National coming in from Indiana, with Alpha Zeta wanting one thing, SDT wanting another thing, we were curious, did the Alpha Zeta women know they were being used? did they know they were the pawns in SDT National's plot against its own Penn chapter? Our producer Quinn Waller asked Stephanie Fogel directly what she knew and what she didn't know.
5: Were you aware of SDT's existence before the
4: merger? No. I mean, I I was only because it was brought to my attention that there, and there were only, I think, a few SDT members, maybe five or something like that on campus at the time. So I was not aware of it until it was brought to my attention at all and hadn't even really thought about it that way. I don't really remember meeting anybody from SDT Penn until we really had sort of made some decisions and there was going to be a merger.
1: Did you catch that? The SDT women at Penn were completely left out of the conversations. Here's producer Quinn Waller again. Walking Stephanie Fogel through what happened
5: they have this event with alcohol. and then Nationals just like, oh, like you guys broke one of our rules. because of that, we're gonna put you on probation. And everybody at STT was like, "What? Well, like what's what's going on? you like you told us that this was fine. And so then because they were on probation, they then couldn't hold any offices. and because they couldn't hold any offices, that's why National brought in, you guys to not not take over but like to have the leadership positions we did take over
4: yeah we did people
5: have used the word framed people have used the word "coup."
4: (laughs) that's so funny no i had no idea that any of that was going on you didn't know about this at all no idea actually interesting wow in fact i'm feeling very manipulated That's so interesting. We really, we really had no idea that that was the background at all.
7: So here's the deal. If you're listening to this podcast, I know two things about you. You care about learning and you care about Jews. And if you care about both of these things, do we have an amazing podcast for you. It's called Take One, and it's hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz. Every day, we read just one page of the Talmud, a very old book offering some surprisingly modern insights into every aspect of modern life. Episodes are very short, just six or seven minutes each, and the guests are surprising. You never know when your favorite congressperson or Hollywood actor or NBA star may drop in for a dose of spiritual self-help, courtesy of Judaism's foundational ancient text. So start your day with a Talmudic shot of inspiration and visit us at tabletmag.com take one.
1: Just to recap what we know, SDT National planned a merger between SDT Pen and Alpha Zeta six months or so before it happened. Alpha Zeta didn't know the means that SDT National was going to use to achieve this merger, and SDT Pen didn't know this merger was going to happen at all. In fact, to SDT Pen, the merger was presented as a spontaneous consequence for the underage drinking infraction, not as something planned in advance. Today, it's hard to say who really knew what 35 years ago. But we do know that in December 1987, a few weeks after the merger, SDT's national office shortened the chapter's probation, saying the women being punished could now participate in the spring rush process. Now that there'd been this infusion of cool Alpha Zeta women, apparently it was time to forgive the drinking violation of just a month prior and let everyone go out and recruit pledges it does all seem a bit suspicious. As far as coups go, this one was relatively benign. And look, you could say that it ended well. It beefed up SDT's numbers, and it rescued them from financial insolvency. And SDT is going strong to this day. But at the time, for some of the women, this was brutal. Imagine you were one of the sisters who had rushed this small, intimate sorority. And then your house gets swallowed up by a larger group of women you didn't know at all. And this new group has a different character. Here's Fern Abrams, one of the original SDT women.
5: The house became much more like the stereotype I'd imagined. So you had the unpleasantness of national controlling us, and then you had a very different focus. I distinctly remember, I actually pulled out my scrapbook from college to try to like put myself back in this time zone. But one thing I remember about that was National coming in. They left two chapter advisors with us to run our rush and I remember they were telling us, "Get the cute
1: Jewish girls." Get the cute Jewish girls? That's a really important statement. What was National trying to tell them?
5: You're not the girls we want and you're doing a bad job. You know, if we'd been filling quota, I don't think they would have cared.
1: What was different about the AZ girls that National was bringing in? Let's go back to Terry Reese, who was part of the original SDT group.
0: When the new girls came in, it became just like the other houses where it was all a certain personality type, more concerned about appearances and connections and who they're meeting instead of really worrying about who people are and what they believe and what they, you know, accepting people as they were. It was more about wanting to be accepted as a group as opposed to accepting people as they were. I can't tell you if they were more Jewish or not. I can tell you that they more seemed to share similar personality traits, certain looks, certain fashion sense, whether it was due to a certain group dynamic or it was just how they wanted to be. I can't really say, but it definitely was more of a homogenous look that was happening as opposed to something that was much more diverse as in the past
1: the women at SDT National saw a problem, declining numbers at their pen chapter. They came to investigate, and they decided the declining numbers could be explained by the fact that current SDT sisters were a bit nerdy and awkward, and that they were also less pretty than was ideal. As a result, they didn't have a good brand, neither cool nor popular. And if it was time for a reboot, then all of those trends could be addressed by getting cooler and cuter Jewish girls. And in the 1980s, you couldn't talk about Jewish girls' coolness or cuteness without raising the specter of a particular stereotype. The Jap, or Jewish American princess. We thankfully don't hear much about Japs anymore, but I remember growing up, hearing cruel, misogynist jokes about Japs. Jokes that were often told by Jewish men or by Jewish women themselves. Japs were materialistic and spoiled. They were rich. They were well-dressed. Their hair was all done up. And they loved using daddy's credit card. There was a whole genre of Jap jokes. One that I remember was, what does a Jap make for dinner? Reservations. Pretty dumb, I know. But people used to call Jewish girls Jappy. In fact, Jewish girls used to call other Jewish girls jappy. Some still do. The stereotype also implied that when a Jewish girl went to college, she was less concerned with academics than with getting her MRS, finding a Jewish husband, or getting into the right sorority. So when SDT National told its pen chapter to rebuild itself by finding cute Jewish girls, they were playing into a very divisive stereotype. We reached out to a bunch of SDT and Alpha Zeta women, And some of them wouldn't speak on the record because this whole incident was so painful in the way it set one group of Jewish women, the individuals, the nerds, the students, against another more popular group. Here's Leslie Hausman, the Kappa Delta member who was on the Panhellenic Council.
5: The term at the time was Jap for Jewish American princess. That was maybe slightly derogatory, but also, slightly not like if you could, I suppose, use it as an insult, but it was how a lot of upper middle class
1: Jewish suburban
5: girls were described like, oh, it's a Jewish American princess. It was usually Jewish girls who were kind of well off.
1: And on the national stage, SDT had a reputation for being very jappy.
5: Sometimes SDT was called spending daddy's trillions, which was overstating it. But that was, yes, that was one of them.
1: Here's Fern Abrams again. She was the chemical engineering major in SDT.
5: I mean, I didn't really know people that I thought were princesses till I got to Penn. My memory of what the stereotype was, got whatever they wanted, material wealth of the parents passed on to the children, and a sort of sense of entitlement, like Rachel Green if she, on Friends, if she were Jewish. Daddy gave you everything. Marry a a well-off man, raise two perfect children, host nice dinner parties.
1: By the way, it was never clear on Friends that Rachel Green, as played by Jennifer Aniston, wasn't Jewish. I think she was. But either way, we get Fern Abrams' point that there was this stereotype of the Jewish woman, the Jap stereotype, that was both complimentary because the Jap was always well-dressed, well-groomed, assertive, pretty, but also quite demeaning because she was shallow and materialistic. Shira Cohn, the historian, said that Jewish sorority sisters had to contend with this stereotype.
2: Jewish sororities are really these perfectly made sites of visible Jewish consumption. Did some Jewish sorority members embody the worst stereotypes of the Jewish American princess, whether it's the princess of the 60s or the princess of the 1980s?
1: Cohn pointed out that some of the classic movie japs came to the screen in the 1980s
2: something like Goldie Hawn's Private Benjamin or thinking about in Dirty Dancing, her older sister. But were they worse offenders than anyone else? Or do they embody it more than a Jewish woman in other places in the United States? Not necessarily. But I think the fact that there are these visible sites of Jewish women's place on campus where they are trying to demonstrate elitism, they are trying to date, you know, the most perceived elite Jewish men. It's a perfect setup for the perpetuation of a really damaging stereotype of women at the time. And often hurling the Jap stereotype at these Jewish sorority women. And I think we still see it even a little bit to this day.
1: By flooding the pen chapter of SDT with women who were supposedly prettier and more popular, SDT National not only played into some aspects of these stereotypes, but they also in a very damaging way pitted Jewish women against each other. For one thing, Alpha Zeta, even though they were seen as more elite than the women of SDT, were less elite in that they didn't even have a rush process. Anyone could join their social club. So when Alpha Zeta member Stephanie Fogel became president of SDT, that was the first time she had to reject anybody.
4: That was a little bit contrary to the philosophy of AZ, because the idea of rush and bringing people on and and telling other people no was not the way we functioned and in fact i remember having to go to a few younger women telling them that they hadn't been accepted and it was horrible and them crying and you know i didn't have any power or authority to bring them in or anything like that and and i ultimately left the organization after that
1: The irony is that SDT National wanted Alpha Zeta to take over SDT at Penn because of how pretty and popular and elite they seemed. They were the cool, hot Jewish women. But the Alpha Zeta women themselves had started their club outside the sorority system, and they were proud not to have a rush process, not to sit in judgment of other women. They were brought into the Greek system because of how exclusive they seemed, but it was actually turning into a sorority that made them exclusive. Talking to the Alpha Zeta women today, you get the feeling they had no interest in elitism. Here's Risa Miller, who moved from Alpha Zeta into SDT.
6: In SDT Nationals' eyes, the chapter was highly unsuccessful. And sadly, that measure of success is sort of the weakness, in my eyes, of the Greek system, which is basically, you know, is popularity, a measure of success.
1: And even though she was unwittingly part of the coup against the SDT women, She really admired what they had.
6: You know, they were very happy. They were a great group of girls that were happy together, that were giving each other friendship and confidence and all the things that you would hope happen in a sorority. Sadly, they just, the sorority system at Penn was not strong. And as a group, you know, maybe they lacked the leadership that they needed to kind of propel themselves forward. They were just very nice, smart girls. I mean, listen, I think Jewish women have a reputation of being strong and tough and sometimes unfiltered. And they were not that. They were just nice girls, like trying to live their life and being nice girls, living together and probably giving each other a nice sense of community. The Greek system as a whole is a fantastic asset in college. It was for me. You know, the downside is it's, it's hard. It's, it is a popularity contest. It is a, you know it's very it's very aesthetically measured and it's a business at the end of the day i mean at the end of the day it's a business for these nationals and they want more people to pay dues they want the house to be paid for i mean it's it's all great but it's it's a business
1: the deeper i got into this story the more intrigued i was It had lots of elements of a good TV show. You can imagine the six-part Netflix series set at an elite campus with the nerds on one side, the popular girls on the other, and then the older women from National swooping in with their nefarious plots. Plus, there'd be a great 80s soundtrack, and there'd be gargantuan shoulder pads, and so much big hair. But as I turned this story over in my head, one thing remained fuzzy. In a story about Jewish sororities, where was the Judaism? Risa Miller told us that there was something Jewish about this whole mess, and that you could see it in how the women of the old SDT and the new women from Alpha Zeta came together and treated each other as menshes, as upstanding people. Miller said that when Rush was over, the new women told the older ladies from National to go home and let the undergraduates figure it all out together. For example, she said that the Alpha Zeta newcomers let the original SDT women keep their rooms at the sorority house, even though they were on probation.
6: And it was kind of a beautiful thing. Like, we're happy to work together to kind of make this work.
1: And Miller said that the new pledge class that they all worked to bring in together was terrific.
6: I think of our first pledge class, and it was a really cool experience. The girls were really excited. They were like the first big pledge class. It was the first time the sorority was structured, strong, kind of what National had in mind, like-minded, mostly Jewish women who were trying to find a community within Penn that had a little bit of a Jewish component, I would say culturally, not religiously. and. I wouldn't say National handled it in a great way in terms of what could have happened. It really did have a happy ending, and I feel like it is sort of a a positive story of Jewish values. And at 18 years old, when you're pretty immature, you know, our group kind of coming up with a way to make it happen. And I think the girls that were in SDT would say the same thing. I, I hope they would.
1: I don't know if all the women in the old SDT the ones who got pushed aside by their own national headquarters using trumped-up drinking charges to force a takeover by an outside group, I don't know if they would say it was a positive thing done with Jewish values. Some of them probably would. But others told us this was a sad, alienating experience and that they felt they lost something special, the spirit of the small sorority they had pledged. But if this is a tale of Jews behaving badly, I want to suggest that it's a positive story nonetheless. According to legend, Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion used to say, How will we know when Israel has become a real country like the rest of the world? When Jewish thieves and Jewish prostitutes conduct their business in Hebrew, and Hebrew-speaking policemen arrest them. I can't find any proof that Ben-Gurion said this, but there's a reason it gets quoted a lot. Because it speaks to the Jewish dream of normalcy. The idea that in a world where Jews are just the norm, some of them will be upstanding citizens— Others will be a little bit shifty. Some will be intellectuals, others will be manual laborers. And nobody will have anything to prove. And that's what's so wonderful about the story of Sigma Delta Tau and Alpha Zeta at Penn. A heavily Jewish social club took over a historically Jewish sorority whose membership included many non-Jews. There was intrigue, subterfuge, treachery, and dishonesty, and feelings were hurt. But in the end, relationships were mended and the sorority endured. Some of these women were nerdy and bookish, others were more social. Some might have been dismissed as a little materialistic, perhaps in a stereotypical way, but all of them felt that the campus was completely accepting of their Judaism. Not a single one complained of anti-Semitism. In other words, Jews at Penn in the 1980s did not feel that they had to be perfect representatives of their tribe. They did not feel they had to be the model minority, they did not feel that all eyes were on them. Bad or good, they were just normal. Some of them were kind, some were catty, some were boring, some were basic, but mostly they just were. And that's what it looked like for Jews to finally truly arrive in the Ivy League. Join us next time for Gate Crashers, Episode 8, the final episode. Harvard and the end of the Jewish Ivy League. Gate Crashers is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer. This episode is based on extensive reporting by Quinn Waller. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Leah Liebowitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Leon Crame is our research assistant. Special thanks to Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sara Fredman-Ader, and Daron Rusquet of Tablet Studios. Alana Newhouse, Morty Landown, Wayne Hoffman, Samantha Hacker, Kurt Hoffman, and all the staff at Tablet Magazine and Christine Ragasa and Megan Larson, Seth Higgins, Cody Fitzpatrick, and Peter Fox. For this episode, special thanks as well to Alice Dick, John Budd, Allison Donovan, and Andy Mandel. Please go rate and review this podcast wherever you got it or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed this series, please tell a friend. Do you have a story of Ivy League Jewellery that you want to share? You can write to us at gatecrashers at tabletmag.com or leave us a voice memo at 917-310-0456. Remember to tell us your name and how we can get in touch with you. For more information about the show, check out tabletmag.com slash gatecrashers. For more from Tablet Studios, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts.